Hey, Richard Gottlieb. Chris Burns. How you doing? I'm doing really well, and we have an important guest on today. We do indeed. Uh, Steve Peserb, who is the head of the Toy Association, and we're going to put his feet to the fire today a little bit about what's going on and how he's going to solve everything in the toy industry. So, Steve, with that introduction, thanks so much for being with us. Hello, gentlemen, and thanks for the magical thinking. It's always a nice place to start in the toy business with fun and fancy. (laughs) Oh, my goodness. Right, exactly. Let's be imaginative and creative. Seriously, there's a lot of stuff going on, and we we want to get into that uh, this morning. But first, this is the Playground Podcast with me, Chris Byrne, my co-host and cohort, Richard Gottlieb, and we are brought to you by Global Toy Experts, the toy guy and marketing and media agency, Chizcom. And Steve, what's going on? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> well, what's going on? In in a world of a whole lot of stuff going on, the headline has got to be the shipping crisis. And crisis is really an understatement for, uh, unfortunately, I think for a lot of companies, it's going to be devastating. Uh, you guys have done a great job of, of reporting and chronicling how things have gotten worse and worse and worse, particularly, Richard, in your, uh, in your email distributions. Um, but it is getting worse and worse and worse. And it's beginning to er- not only erase people's profit margins, but also now run them up against retailer delivery deadlines and commitments. So in, in a lot of ways, this is worse than the border adjustment tax, the tariffs, the TRU bankruptcy all rolled up into one. And the real challenge of it is, is the solutions are pretty darn elusive. Steve, you just said something kind of in, interested me and and that you just cited the other things that the industry has gone through. And, and really, the toy industry has been undergoing a series of shocks really since, I think, the tariff threats that were two or three years ago. And this has been a, a, a very challenging time for the industry, and it's impacted the big companies and the small companies as well. So we talk so much about the bigger guys. What are you hearing from those companies that are not publicly traded, that are not top tier or second tier? What are you hearing from them? You know, I've been out over the last year plus kind of um, really talking about the fact that regardless of what the MPD numbers are and regardless of how great 2020 looked looked like it from a sales standpoint, there were significant winners and losers in in the last year and a half. A lot of small companies didn't sell anything. If you're selling at vacation locations, in movie theaters, at theme park, in specialty retail that was closed down, uh, you were getting incredibly negatively impact. And you were pinning your hopes now on this holiday season as your real recovery, which brings us to the shipping crisis. So what we're hearing is a lot of uncertainty. Obviously, the resilience that the toy industry has already had, but a lot of people now profoundly worried about business survival. I think one indicative point is normally in the toy fair kind of season, we see about 100 new companies gin in and out of our membership ranks. Those who either sold off to somebody, sold their product, didn't make it go, another 100 come in. That number is significantly down. So there's not a lot of people entering the toy business if you will, right now in a position financially to be able to exhibit right now as a small company. Um, So there is a sea change going on and it is really happening at the smaller mid to small size member companies. And it's profound and it isn't capturing the headlines because the numbers on the year tend to grab the headlines versus the balance of what's gone on. 
Is it being caused because they are have trouble getting access to capital right now, maybe because capital is a little uncertain? Or is it just that the animal spirits that we rely on in this industry so much are dampened right now? Well, it's you know clearly if they didn't generate revenue in the past year or didn't generate significant enough revenue to be able to reinvest in next round and in, in, in things like that, capital is hard to find. Um, while there has been a lot of private equity and stuff entering the toy industry, it's been at the mid to large size companies, not the small size companies. And again, as I said earlier, a lot of companies really were telling us over the last year, when we get to holiday 21, it'll it'll make everything better and then we'll go on from there. Well, they also weren't expecting their $3,000 shipping container to be $21,000. Right. And they weren't expecting demerge and detention and uh, special uh, special privilege fees and everything else on it. Or to be, some cases, 71 days on the, on the water because it sat in China for weeks and weeks and weeks, rolling off, not being rolled onto ships. And then it's now waiting to get into the port of L.A. It's a huge financial strain when your margins are thin and your capital is not abundant. Have you looked down the road to see when you think, and no one's going to hold you to this, but when you think this might loosen up a little bit? Well, certainly in the shipping end, uh, the the experts out there predict um, another six months of this. So well past the holiday season. And we're kind of in a bit of a feast and famine mode right now. You know, there was a lot said about the giant ships that have been built over the last decade and how big they are. But that also leads to when things are tight, there's no capacity. But when things are loose, then there's a ton of capacity. It's feast or famine, and it hits the ports the same way. The shipping industry's got a lot to sort out. The, F, the Federal Maritime Commission tells us the companies do have more ships on order. There will be more capacity coming. Um, so things should get better. But I don't think they're going back to where they were. $3,000 was an unnaturally low amount of money to move a giant piece of tonnage halfway across the world. But $21,000 is insane. Right. Um, so somewhere in the middle, reality is going to set and it'll probably meet us in the springtime, according to all the experts. I've also been talking to a lot of people about the upcoming show season and what does that mean? And Dallas, of course, is would be coming up in October, but we've heard that neither Target nor Amazon is going to be attending. What's the prognosis or the forecast for the shows coming up? Well, I think, you know, certainly as Dallas goes, Dallas has always been a highly targeted show for middle-sized companies that um, need that access to Target, to Amazon, to Walmart. Target is going to take some select virtual appointments with some of the exhibitors, the people that they really would have gone to Dallas to see, but their corporate travel policy isn't letting them. As of the moment, Walmart is obviously coming to both shop and buy. As the Delta variant uh, rolls out, who knows where those things come out. But clearly, Dallas right now is a bit the same number of companies, but companies are taking less space. Now, you've got the Rubies in there, obviously, who are recovering and, 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 you know, used to be big exhibitors. But overall, it goes back to that, what we've talked about. People are very guarded. If I took X amount of space, I'm taking X minus 25% space. I am coming. We're super on all the on all the mid-mass, all the specialty, all the ones that are normally there. But it's going to be a profoundly different show. The masking will be in place. The protocols will be in place. The dynamic will be very different uh, this year. And we just can't predict what the next two months between now and that show will hold in terms of where the Delta variant goes. Steve, are you finding that if a company cuts back 25% on its space, are they also cutting back on the number of people they're sending? 
It's too soon to tell. Registrations right now are on pace with 2019. So the last show, things are one for one. Yeah, you 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 would guess that if somebody's going to bring not nine people to the show or five people to the show, it's going to be seven or three. And we've seen that at the Atlanta Gift Show and other places. The Dallas Market Center in their trade shows have been making their attendance um, and exhibitor numbers. So it's, it's a wait and see. But Dallas this year will be a degree smaller. It'll be a degree quieter. The party is planned. Um, Jazzwares is going to be the sponsor of the party this year. So there's that energy around it. But it meets that guarded nature of the industry is everybody right now tries to sort out what the impacts are of shipping on their immediate and next term business. At the party, are you cutting back on the booze by 25 (laughs) percent? No, I think probably given what's going on, we'll need to increase booze by by 60 percent. Yeah, yeah. And and I know Texas has been a bit of a hot spot in terms of the the Delta variant and in terms of what they're requiring in terms of masking and vaccination. Is the market center or the toy association going to require masking or vaccination or how is that being handled? Our approach right now is all the safety protocols need to continue. So, again, um, you know, as we get closer to the event, if they need to be tighter, um, they'll be tighter. If they need to be looser, thank God, they'll be looser. But Texas is a unique place. We um, we get to set the own rules on our floors uh, of the show. And right now, our lean is toward making sure people are safe and secure and feel comfortable in the environment. Uh, We can't control the airport transit and things like that, but we can certainly control what goes on in the venue. And it's crazy to say, you know, it's still two months away, but so much of it is up in the air because we don't know where the world is going right now, particularly our own country's behavior. Steve, let me ask you a very specific question. Uh, Mayor uh, de Blasio in New York City last night announced that in order to go to a restaurant or a gym, you have to have proof of um, vaccination. And a mask. So what specifically at this moment is the protocol by the Toy Association for the Dallas show? With Dallas show, it's going to be masking and distancing and all the sanitation stations and things like that. We haven't gone to requiring proof of vaccination yet, but that's certainly not off the table if it needs to be on the table. I think some of the shows over the last period of time have gone back and forth and, and appeared to their audiences wishy-washiest about what the rules are. And that has led to some fall off in attendance and participation in those shows. So our lean is toward safety first. And if you're not comfortable having to deal with all the safety protocols, maybe you should not be there versus it's going to be a free for all and good luck. We want people to feel safe. We need people to be safe. The interesting thing about our industry is people are highly vaccinated. They want to get back to work. Yeah. They want to they want to get in front of uh, the retailers. They want to you know get out in front of their customers. So they're doing everything on their level best to make sure that they can travel. We can't control the rest of the world, though. One of the things we keep hearing about the desire to return to shows is that, yeah, it's one thing to get reorders on something that's done well, but if you're introducing a new product or a new property, the inability for people to touch and feel and see and really experience in three dimensions the product has really been a drag on retailers getting on board. You are absolutely right. We hear it from everybody. I need to get out. I need to touch stuff. I need to feel stuff. I can't, you know, I cannot do it visually. As good as 3D or anything else is, 
or sending me a sample in the mail. I, I need the human interaction combined with the touch of the product. I mean, I think you had Andy Weiner on a, a couple of weeks ago, and he made a great point. One of the things I don't think we know about what we've been missing in the shows is what we've been missing. Yeah. The, the happenstance that occurs in the aisle, the ride in the elevator that need, needs to a, to an order. That has all been missing from our industry, and it is part of what moves the industry forward. Steve, I, I have a, a big picture question, and let me set this up for you. The Hong Kong show is in question for the long haul. At this point, it does not appear for the second year in a row we'll be going to Hong Kong because the quarantines are still in place. Also, when we have a situation where for two years people don't go, habits change. Secondly, we have the Dallas show. That show has been a little controversial in terms of where it is. And then we have Los Angeles which has become more important, but yet I don't think anybody fully understands it. Are we going to see for maybe the first time in decades a major shift in where shows take place and when they take place? Short answer to the question, yes. Let's unpack it and go back a little bit. Hong Kong's really two trips. So the October trip a lot of companies make after Dallas definitely isn't happening. To your point, January probably isn't happening. So that calls into question the long-term uh, role of Hong Kong, particularly given the fact that a lot of companies then unpack from Hong Kong and go to Shenzhen or somewhere else to, to see their factories. So is what occurred there going to end up in Shenzhen or Shanghai at some point in a, in a very different dynamic? One could guess that. You've got other shows like the London show, which is right up against Nuremberg, and there's pressures there. You've got uh, Nuremberg and others. So big shifts going, going on in that area. It is our last contracted year of Dallas. So uh, this is the final year that we are committed to the Dallas Market Center. Our board in our strategic plan, every year we do the member survey. Every year the member survey says there's this conflict dynamic between wanting to be in LA and wanting to be in Dallas. We've got to take both of those on. It may be either or or both, but some change is coming there. And we're also doing the New York Reimagination Project. The timing of New York as the industry has changed. Is, is, is an issue. We are the smallest client in the Javits Center. We're not a big client. We think of ourselves as big, but uh, we're not putting 30 shows a year in that building. We're putting one. So what New York is, how it is, when it is, what the audience is, what other categories can come in is all on the cards as well. So I think you're going to see an, an entire almost global shift in what is the toy shopping season, what is the sequence of the shows. Nuremberg is the, is the giant, no question about it. It's firmly entrenched. But that dynamic is going to be different this year. Hong Kong is changing. New York needs to evolve. L.A. needs to be addressed on behalf of our members. So all those things are going to happen in the next couple of years. Status quo no longer works. One of the things that has been so good about Dallas is how efficient it is to go from around there. L.A. is a little bit more challenging. If you if you have to drive and you're only doing three or four meetings in a day, you're spending a lot of time on the 10 and the 405 and on the phone. One of the big things is we're taking our cues from the buying community. The shows need to be as much buyer back as they need to be toy company forward, if you will. And what the buying community is telling us is L.A. is a challenge. The highways are a challenge. Getting from appointment to appointment is a challenge. Getting obligated into dinners and everything else. They would like to see L.A. more coordinated, centralized, 
and the ability to see a range of other companies, to make that trip as productive as possible, looking at as much different product as possible in every given day. And Chris, to your point, you can't do that if you spend an hour on the highway between every appointment. So a centralized location um, is huge in the Delhi area, in the LA area, and making sense of the chaos is what both the smaller member companies want and the buying community really wants. Uh, Steve, could you, for, for people who have not been to the to LA during this period uh, in October, can you just kind of describe what the landscape is currently? You know, obviously you've had the gravity over the last decade of companies moving their own showrooms there, either permanent staff there or having a showroom in LA. Then you have a lot of companies that go in. There's a Regis office building, rental office building right by Mattel. A lot of showrooms in there. There's the courtyard by Marriott across the street from Mattel. Companies go in there. There are the hotels at the airport. Some of them go in, go into those locations. So what you've got is both established companies that are of the L.A. community, a Mattel, a Playmates, those that have been there for a long period of time, Funrise, MGA and others. And then you've got a whole lot of companies that are there transitionally, if you will, and then a whole lot more that are there for a week or two out of the year. And that's what leads to that perceived buyer chaos. Even Hong Kong, the magazine's put out a list of where the showrooms are. In L.A., it, it changes on an hourly basis. <laughs> um, that's part of what people want to see cured, if you will. So, so are we saying that, that currently El Segundo is kind of the Chimchachoy East of, of the West Coast of the United States? <laughs> Yeah, to a degree, I think you could make that argument. Certainly, the gravity has been moving toward L.A. The energy has been moving to L.A. And, you know, people say, well, buyers don't want to be in L.A. more than a couple of days. And I remind them, we used to decamp into the toy building for three weeks. Right. Right. <laughs> right? And, and New York was the center for three solid weeks. You could probably make two one-week trips to L.A. and you come out a week ahead. <laughs> <laughs> Steve, do Chinese executives come to Los Angeles for the show, or is it too early to tell because of the coronavirus for the last couple of years? Oh, it's too, it's way too soon to tell whether or not there's going to be travel. So in terms of L.A., L.A., one of the strengths of L.A. is it does bring the international buying community into L.A. So it's not just the Walmart's targets and U.S. companies running to L.A., but it is an international draw, which Dallas will not be, which, again, is another distinguishing point. Chinese companies right now, the travel restrictions that are out there are obviously putting a damper on Dallas. They're putting a damper on confirmed bookings for New York in February. If our rules don't change, there are 85 international exhibitors at Toy Fair in New York, um, some of whom, if their country isn't allowed into the U.S., may not be able to come. So that's the nature of this being such a dynamic situation. One, one week, a country's good and can travel. The next week, the country's not good and can't travel. It is leading to a constant shuffling of the New York show. As we sit here today, and it's, it's early August, and you're looking out towards Toy Fair 2022, what is the landscape looking like for Toy Fair 2022 in New York? So it's looking good in terms of huge interest and desire to be there, both by exhibitors and um, attendees. The big questions, well, there's two big questions. One is part of the energy of New York is all those new companies and small companies in 10 by 10 booths, the E-Hall, where all the new, the new companies are, um, the small ones interspersed. They are showing signs of weakness right now, no question about it. Then the second is the international dynamic of that show. 
Um, we have um, 85-some exhibitors from elsewhere around the world that are an integral part of that show, not just the China Pavilion or the Hong Kong Pavilion, um, but a lot of those. That, they're booked into the show. Whether or not they can be there, we don't know. And then you've got the international attendees. We do draw from, from a lot of countries around the world and heavily from South America. Will that travel occur? So the core of what is the New York Toy Fair is solid, and it's going to be there. And the Walmarts have have all their plans put together, and on and on and on, and the, and others. But but that margin that I think is part of the magic. You know, Richard always points to those elements that really distinguish one thing from another. Those are what we worry about. And those are what we focused on. The hundred new companies that buy ten by ten booths and come with all that entrepreneurial magic. Will they be there? It's too soon to tell. One of the parts of the Toy Association that isn't really top of mind for a lot of people all the time is how you guys work with the government. What's going on right now with your lobbying efforts and the and issues in front of our government? It ranges from the shipping crisis is right now the most urgent. We're dealing with that at the congressional level with agencies like Federal Maritime Commission, right up to the White House and administration and doing that with other trade associations. So number one, getting answers around the shipping crisis. But I, to your point, I don't think our, our members always know that we work at the international, federal, state and local level. And, you know, we're dealing with things like ISO is going to come out with a new set of rules for children's advertising around toys, oh my um, which would have been now another new set of rules companies would have had to follow. We and a lot of our brethren and a lot of our members fought and beat that back. A big international issue. The Vietnam tariffs, which were a very real and would have hit part of our industry. Luckily, that was resolved through a lot of pressure. On the federal level, COPPA that was just reopened by the Better Business Bureau, and luckily that was a, a decent outcome. And then you've got the whole state level, which is literally 50 different states that you have to watch every given day of the, uh, of the year because you don't know what bill is going to come out. We've got some huge problems. The state of Oregon now has a set of chemical rules which are at opposition of the federal rules. So our companies need to follow the federal rules. How do you follow the federal in the Oregon? That's going to be a significant problem down the road because it's literally untenable to be able to do business that way. We've got a lot of extended producer responsibility bills now coming up at the state level. You saw Maine just passed one, and it's making manufacturers of all products responsible for funding the state's recycling program. You're going to see that in a lot more states. That's an easy win if you're a local legislator. Our members rank our ability to help them sell stuff as the number one benefit of being members. And number two is all the things we do from a government affairs standpoint. Uh, we were concerned kind of coming into a Democratic uh, administration that you always get more regulation. That's not a political statement. It's just when you have a Republican, you have less, you have Democrat, you have more. And it's something to watch. So far, that hasn't happened. But the risks to the industry that come up in those three different dynamics are constant. We go through at the beginning of every year more than a thousand bills at the local and state level that affect the toy industry. Out of that, a couple hundred surface that could be really troublesome, a few dozen that we have to fight. And it is literally like a wash, rinse, repeat cycle. It's great that the crises don't happen. Um, people forget that somebody made the crisis not happen. Um, you know, they, <laughs> That would be you guys. <laughs> uh, and we, and we, we try to remind them. But we also need, when things do go wrong, we need the toy community to step up. 
the voices of the toy industry around what happened in New York State a couple of years ago were in hugely important to keep all those chemical bills from coming out that would have just devastated the industry in that state. We need that grassroots support. We need the Astro Toy Stories that called our local mayors and stuff and say, hey, this is a problem for me. Um, so it's a big, big part of our industry. We're in the children's business. We're deeply committed to safety. But people are constantly trying to regulate us and change the rules of our business in such a way that just don't make sense and don't add to safety. You know, I think that that's part of the Toy Association's proud history. If you go back and you look at what's happened really from the early days of the 20th century right through, there's always been advocacy for the toy industry. And for example, getting toys declared an essential industry during World War II meant that toy manufacturers were able to get the materials that they needed to manufacture. So this is this is nothing new. It's just that the problems are new, but this is something the association has done really since its founding. And we're one of the uh, interesting industries. We advanced the first toy safety standard. It wasn't foisted upon the industry. The industry actually came up with it because they knew how important it was to consumers to know the toys their kids play with are safe. We support sensible regulation because it gives consumers confidence. What we don't support is redundant, duplicative, new hurdles or expenses that companies have to pay that don't add to safety. Do you think we'll ever get to a global standard because we are such an international business? I know, I know, it's a difficult question, but I, it's one of the things I've scratched my head about for, for decades now. I've got to say, from a business standpoint, if you had international standards, think of how product would be able to flow around the world. It would be, it would be so good for families and children and for the industry to, that when we go to a place like Nuremberg and, and we see literally tens of thousands of products that can't be purchased in the United States and vice versa. I don't understand why this is so challenging. Well, a couple reasons. One, I mean, we've been working with Canada for years to try to harmonize the U.S. and Canada. Health Canada has their interest in how they want to do it, and our federal government has their interest in how they want to do it. We have been able to get more countries around the world onto the ASTM standard, but you also need to understand some companies see this as a way to remain competitive. Uh, I create the, the most onerous rules. I keep, look what's, you know, I keep people out. Look what's going on right now with India and China. India's put a set of rules in place to do business there that basically is keeping everyone out in order to grow their own industry. So harmonized standards are the least important thing to that nation as they seek to grow their own toy industry. You're absolutely right. It makes perfect sense. Companies are essentially those who sell around the world having to shop every country they sell in and just build to the most egregious set of rules. Uh, right? You don't build to the lowest standard. You have to build to the highest standard. It doesn't make any sense, but there's just so many entrenched, invested interests in keeping the system as it is that we constantly push back on it. We try to control even our own backyard with our companies, which tend to be all the Canadian companies, say Spinmaster and a few others, are divisions of U.S. companies. We all have a common interest in wanting to do more business across our borders, but we can't get harmonization. And that's nothing new either. We saw the same kind of issues after the First World War, the Second World War and the Korean War. So it's an ongoing issue. It doesn't mean you don't stop. And that's what we have to keep pressing. And that's why we have to stop the increase. The ISO would have been yet another set of rules. Right, right. Uh, if I could summarize, everything's horrible and, and we're doing great. <laughs> Dickens, Dickens would love this moment if he were in the toy business. Yeah. Um, because <laughs> people, 
people are selling everything they can get their hands on, but the challenge right now is they can't get their hands on it. So that's that's the macro version, or, or they can get their hands on it and not make any money on it. The other stuff is just part of the beast. It's why we exist. We, you know, we shorthand our mission statement. Our job is to promote and protect the toy industry. Those two things more than anything else. Help you sell your stuff and make sure that the government or as some other body doesn't keep you from being a successful business. All the other stuff, genius of play, whatever else it is, is wonderful, but it has to come after those two priorities. We see our role here is we're in the service business. We've got at any time up to 1,100 different companies that depend on our ability to protect and promote them. And that's our commitment in good times and bad. Uh, yeah, these are great times from a sales standpoint. There's a lot of risk out there to uh, Richard's point. But Chris, you've, you've put a historical uh, cap on all these things. We somehow find a way to get through and prevail, whether it's a world war or a CPSIA or a tariff. We're still here, we're still having kids, and we're still making great toys. I always say as long as people reproduce and buy stuff, we'll have a toy industry. There you go. <laughs> Chris, they're not. <laughs> right, 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 exactly. Steve Peserb, as always, it is so much fun and so enlightening to talk with you. We certainly appreciate your spending the time with us today. Thank you. And thank you for all you guys are doing on behalf of the toy industry. Well, we appreciate you and Richard because you do an amazing job of getting the word out about how wonderful this industry is and keeping people aware of what's going on. So thank you. This is the Playground Podcast, and we'll be right back with the end cap. And now we come to the part of the show that we call the end cap, where Richard and I talk about issues that are very top of mind for the toy industry. And Richard there's a new horror movie out there. It's called It's Beginning to Look a Lot Like Christmas. <laughs> you know, if you listen to some of the folks in the toy industry, uh, you're right. That That is kind of how they're looking at it. I, I wrote a piece called Christmas 2021. Will the shelves be half full or half empty? And, and in the article, I discuss real concerns about the availability of product in the fourth quarter. And there were reactions to it on the social networks that expressed some real anxiety and fears that there'll be nothing on the shelves. It was, a, a, I thought, an extreme reaction, but it really does speak to some, some real fears about the ability to get goods from China, where most of the toys are made, to the store shelves in America. It's it's really a challenge. And we saw this week that Ningbo port, the Ningbo port in China, was shut down with one asymptomatic case of COVID-19 testing positive. So I, I don't know if that's open again at this recording, which is a few days later, but even losing a day, I read that there were like 96 containers sitting on the docks that couldn't move. It's not back open. It's not back open, right. So so that's just going to stack up. And I, as I've been saying to people, when you have a selling season that goes from October 1st to December 24th, you lose a week. That's a, that's a lot. Plus this year, we've got Hanukkah right on the tail of Thanksgiving. So it's, it's going to be a challenge. You and I both talked to a lot of folks in... You know, we, we pick up information and, we, of course, we read a lot, too. And basically, I, I'm getting the sense that there's two worlds. Uh, I think if you're a very, very large company and uh, you have 
a very strong logistics division. You're not in good shape, but you are in better shape than anybody else because you have people there who are professionals. They, you are employed by them, and their job is to get that product to market. And uh, they're doing it in, in a number of ways. They're uh, shopping ports, they're reducing SKUs, they're cutting back on packages, they're, they're using uh, additional shipping lines. So I think, Chris, that if it's Hasbro or Mattel, you have a much better chance that you'll see their products on the shelf. And you're going to see from smaller companies who don't have the infrastructure. And, and just one more point, Chris, they also don't have the, the money. Uh, Mattel and Hasbro can pay these exorbitant rates for freight because they know eventually things will, will settle down and they have weathered the storm and maintained their customer relationships. But if you're a small company, you don't have that kind of padding. I would also throw into the mix companies the size of Jazzwares and Just Play, and I've been likening it a little bit to the TV market. These guys know they're going to be bringing in toys, so they can buy upfront. They can secure the container space upfront, so they don't have to wait and buy it on the spot market or buy it at the end or suddenly try to scramble if they have something that hits and replenish. They know that there's going to be a certain amount of container space they may not know what's going into those containers, but they know that they've got that space. So I think it's a they do have that advantage of scale and size. Right. Uh, the other thing, Chris, I think you're going to see, you know, I was thinking about it. If, if I'm a toy company and, and I make a range of toys from, from low price to high price and freight rates are high and containers are scarce, I'm not going to ship low price goods. It doesn't make economic sense. And it, it doesn't make sense in terms of space on a container. So where I think you could really see shortages are lower price goods. Or tighter margin goods. I think when you look at something like an LOL surprise or you look at something that comes in a capsule, those are very high margin toys and you can get a lot of them in a container. So I think people are going to be doing the math and they're going to be looking at every single toy in terms of cube and margin and time. And is this something that if it doesn't arrive till right before the holidays, can it be something that will still be vital and viable in the spring? So there are so many more issues to consider this year than we've seen in the past. And Chris, I think there's one area that we need to talk about is what are retailers going to do? I mean, it's one thing uh, to talk about the various toy companies having problems, but if you're Walmart or Target, and, and I'm sure if you're going to get the goods, you, you have a better chance of getting it than somebody else. But still, if you've got empty shelves, how are you going to manage that? Are you going to give out coupons? Are you going to get out? Are, are we going to see the selling of a, of a lot of gift cards? Are we going to see a lot of merchandise on the shelves in January and February just because it came in late? It's going to be really interesting to see how retailers handle this issue. You know, my crystal ball has been on the fritz all week, so I don't really have the, the uh, definitive answer to that. But I do think that the trend in gift cards may actually be a bonus this year because kids will 
wait and spend that gift card when the products are back on the shelves. So I, I think that that growth has been something that might offset a little bit of this loss, but it is going to be challenging because empty shelves during the holiday season is lost revenue and there's no other way around it. It is one more thing, Chris. What about advertising? Are you going to be advertising your product if it's not on the shelf? Well, that's the issue. It's it's again, it's when when Hasbro Mattel, you know, the bigger companies commit to advertising time early on, they get a better rate, but they can put on the ads what's at the time, what's available at the time. I've talked to a lot of companies about their promotion plans and they're saying We've got limited inventory on product X. We may be shifting our marketing halfway through the season to product Y. So they're going to be using what they've already committed to to try to drive the inventory that's available. It's going to be very changeable. It's going to be seat of the pants. It's going to be last minute. And it's going to be a scramble. Well, we're going to find out what's going to happen. But <laughs> we'll try to keep everybody up to date on what we're hearing and what we're thinking. We, we absolutely will. And we're so glad you tuned in to the Playground Podcast with me, Chris Byrne, and my co-host and cohort, Richard Gottlieb. If you like our show, we hope you'll share it on your social networks. Come visit us at theplaygroundpodcast.com to hear all of our episodes. And thanks for tuning in. And we'll look for you next time. We are brought to you by Global Toy Experts, The Toy Guy, and marketing and media agency, Chizcom.